And uh, we're going to do our best, so that'll be good. Um, our reading comes from Acts fifteen thirty six through sixteen ten. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take Mark to call, oh, to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word, it is true, and it is given out of his dear love for you guys. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Pat. The uh, person who did the slides this weekend is totally fired. That was me, just so you know. So, sorry about that. Uh, you want to leave that open? We're going to have it up again. Actually, the whole thing, we're going to look at that together. But um, awesome job by, uh, by Pat getting all the names right. Can we give him a hand for that? He had a lot of location names. And uh, I appreciate good, solid reading. That was great. We, um, by the way, I should, I should back up a minute. My name's Aaron. I don't know if I've met all of you. Um, good, welcome to Missio Dei, and uh, Colbert and the elders uh, asked me to preach again today, which should call their judgment into question, but you can talk to them about that. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys uh, because going through Acts is such an exciting thing, and, and last week, if you were here or if, if you want to listen to it online, they were at the Jerusalem Council, which was a huge moment a big event in the book of Acts um, that actually set in trajectory the whole rest of the New Testament. They made some decisions that day uh, at the Jerusalem Council that affect all the rest of, of Peter and of Paul's ministry. And today, as you heard, it's kind of more of a travelogue. It's kind of just a narrative uh, of where Paul was going next. And in these, in these travelogues, in just these stories... In the New Testament, there's still a lot of great stuff that we can get out of it. And that's just life, right? That there's sometimes there's big events, and then there's just sort of 
Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock, right? Like, that's our life, isn't it? And, and we can even get things out of the, the smaller moments. And so Paul sets out uh, the same year of the Jerusalem Council, this is 49 AD, that Paul kind of moves out uh, on his next journey. And this is today going to show us the westward uh, expansion of the church, actually the first time uh, that a church is going to be planted in Europe is today. And that's, that's the heritage for all of us in this room, is that the gospel went to Europe. We're, we should be grateful for that, right? Came, we came from Antioch, and Jer- the, the council was in Jerusalem, the, the sort of the headquarters of, of Paul's sending churches in Antioch, and he would go into Turkey, and he went into Galatia, which is just sort of modern day, a little bit west of Turkey. And so now he heads west um, to Macedonia, uh, and the gospel advances to Europe. So let's look at our text again, chapter 15, uh, verse 37. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So John Mark earlier had abandoned uh, Paul and Barnabas. And later we find in the book of Colossians that John Mark is actually Barnabas's cousin. They're actually family. And so you can imagine that it would have been a little harder for Barnabas to just kind of leave him and sort of in, in a way, kind of discipline him for that, because it was his cousin, right? And, and Paul, though, thought it would be better to not take him with them, because he had, he had abandoned them earlier, and so they had this disagreement, and they separated from each other. Now, I just want us to, to observe a couple things really quick, and that is, first of all, is that if you've heard that the Bible is sort of a story of myths, and um, they made up a bunch of stories about heroes and sort of elevated them, and it's kind of phony, and it was taken from the time, and so we can't really trust the Bible's reliability. This little sentence right here should, should help us with that, because if someone was sort of spinning the Bible, spinning the story, and leaving in just the good parts, they would have left this out. Especially because Paul, who had a big disagreement with Barnabas, wrote pretty much the rest of the Bible, right? And so if we were going to sort of try to whitewash Paul's life and sort of exalt him, we would have left this out. So this is a real statement of the trustworthiness of of the Scriptures and of Luke recording these trips, because Luke wrote the book of Acts, is that he's not trying to whitewash anybody. Luke's not trying to spin this story so that you think higher of these guys than they are. Paul was just a man. And so when Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament and write the words that we have today, and God inspired that text, that is infallible. It's it's without error in the original manuscripts. We don't think that any mistakes were made. We think we can learn from everything that Paul wrote. But the rest of Paul's life was not inerrant and not infallible. He was just a dude that God used to plant all the churches. And so there isn't a person that we can say, well, that person's infallible, and, and uh, you know, their life is just A plus, A plus, golden. We should just follow them in everything they do. No, Paul 
had weaknesses as well, and this is one of them today, is that he had to separate from his good friend. Now, we don't know, you know, was it that Barnabas was sort of holding too tightly to family, and he didn't want to sort of do something difficult, so he held on too tightly to Barnabas? Or was Paul being too harsh in leaving, Bar- um, in leaving John Mark behind? We don't know sort of the ins and outs of that, but as usually is the case in relationships, it was probably what? It's probably a little... <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that. Um, it was probably a little bit of both. It was probably a little bit of both. Maybe, maybe Barnabas was being a little too loyal to a fault. Maybe Paul was being a little too harsh. I would guess it was probably a little bit of both, as it usually is in relationships. And so we need to be on guard, guys. This is just a reminder to us that even in our most precious relationships, um, even in, even in you know, the folks that are very near to us, our own pride, uh, the cares of this world, sometimes the enemy can get in there. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone where they say, well, I really thought that you felt this way about me, and you said this, and, and, and you're sitting there going, I... I, I've never said that. I don't, I don't feel that way about you. Why, why do you think I said that? Well, that's just what I, it's coming to my head that you feel that way. Well, who's, who's talking? Right? We have an enemy, don't we? We have an enemy, and so sometimes it can be that. Sometimes it can be the cares of the world. Sometimes it can be um, our own pride that, that can cause us to separate from our friends, and so we need to um, keep short accounts with each other. We need to apologize quickly. We need to be clear about what we think towards each other. All things that you've heard before and that you know to be true. Here's just another reminder that even the Apostle Paul was not immune from some relational disconnect and some relational um, strife. Now just so you know, as a postscript, later on in Colossians, we, we know that Paul did have some sort of uh, some, some level of reconciliation with Barnabas. We don't actually have any recording of Paul and Barnabas working together ever again. But we do know that, that Paul calls John Mark, uh, the guy in question here, Paul calls John Mark a comfort to him and a service to him. That's in Colossians 4. Please uh, bring John Mark. He's a, he's a support to me. He's a comfort to me. So we don't know if Paul and Barnabas ever made up, but we do know that Paul partnered uh, with John Mark. So there was a a level of reconciliation there, and I should probably be fair to Paul since I've sort of uh, been down on him a little bit. That did happen, and, and Paul was able to, uh, to reconcile a bit. So in our story then, this, this uh, travelogue, after the separation, then Paul and Silas make plans to visit the churches they planted. We're going to go back to the churches that we planted before. Galatia, that's where the, the letter of Galatians was written to that church. Let's go back there. Let's go back to Bithynia and some other places. But God had other plans. Let's look at um, chapter 16, uh, verse 6 there in chapter 16. It says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is called the the Macedonian call. And we we don't know exactly what kept Paul and Silas from these other places. It said the Spirit of God did not allow us to go here and to go there. We don't know what that looked like, what exactly kept them, but they were sensitive to the Spirit and, and left for Macedonia. And so what Paul didn't do was, he didn't just say, well, I'm going to wait 
and I'm going to just see uh, if God gives me a word, and then I will follow that. No, he was, he was attempting to be faithful, and he tried to go to this church and follow God to that church, and the doors were closed, and then the Lord appeared to him in, in sort of a miraculous way to tell him to go to Macedonia. We can, we can learn from that, that that waiting on the Lord for those kinds of things is an active waiting. It's going with our best wisdom, going with the best next thing to do, and following him into that, and, and God will bless that, and God will guide us in those things. And so, like I said, the gospel had only been in Asia to that point, and in the Middle East, and Macedonia uh, is actually where the church at Philippi is located. And so Paul is headed there, where we get our letter to the Philippians. He's headed over to Europe, and the gospel was spread into Europe, and then, of course, into the Western world years later. So a big moment today, big moment even though it's just a, a travelogue that we're reading as he's now in Europe. What do we do when we read passages like this that are just kind of a day-to-day narrative of things? What's, what's the takeaway uh, that we can get from this in Acts? Uh, Luke was there with them. Actually, the, the, the pronouns switch right here in our passage today that Luke starts to use. We went to Bithynia. We went to Macedonia. So Luke is now with them. He's actually writing from first-person experience. He's there with them. Um, the big takeaway is that God has an overarching plan in the advancement of the gospel. The church will move forward, and God, by his design, will see for sure that that will happen and that it does happen. He uses a variety of ways to do it, but God is going to advance his church. He even used a disagreement between two brothers for the advancement of the gospel. Because what happened? Barnabas and John Mark went east and south, and Paul and Silas went north and west, and so the labors were doubled. The gospel advanced more, and God used a disagreement between brothers for the doubling of the labor. And as we read too in verse 1 of chapter 16, who did Paul meet on his journey that came about because of some disagreement? He met Timothy, which is an important figure in the rest of the church. And we have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, those letters. And Timothy was the pastor of of a church that Paul mentored. And so God's going to use even the bad stuff, even the disagreements, God uses that to advance his church, uh, and, and the labors were doubled. And then, so that's sort of, sort of a day-to-day kind of common thing. Two people disagree. We, we part ways. God uses that. God uses sort of common things. And then in verse 6, like we just said, God uses a very uncommon, miraculous thing. That Paul gets a vision. Um, the Macedonian call, the man appears to him, says, come help us. And, and God closed those other doors, and so Paul heads to Europe. So God uses day-to-day normal stuff and very miraculous stuff. God had a plan. God was at the wheel. Amen? I think you know where I'm going with this, right? Is that God is going to get his work done in your life, in my life, for the advancement of his church, for the advancement of your life, in your relationships, in your work, in what God has for you. God will complete his work. And most of the time, it'll be something that you may not notice until the future. Sometimes it'll be big, huge events and sometimes miraculous things. And so today we're going to look at that and the concept of that to help us sort of process um, how God works in our life. So let's back up and, and look at sort of the large 
theological concept here is that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over everything. And when He works for our good in our lives, that's called the providence of God. That He is working uh, through us, through other people in our lives. I have a few scriptures that, that so just don't, you don't think I made this up, that the Bible teaches God's sovereignty. Ephesians 1.11 says God works all things to the purpose, sorry, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, that's a huge statement because we don't often want to accept that, do we? That, that God could use the thing that's just driving us nuts on some Thursday morning, that God is using that towards his will for our lives. All means all. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Like, like we're saying today, even small little stuff, and yes, huge uh, big things as well. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then um, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish all my purpose. That's a huge statement. God says, declaring the end from the beginning. That means that when, then, that when we talk about uh, God being omnipresent, I'm sure Colbert has talked about that before, that God is everywhere, that means this. That God is in time with us. We know that because Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit's with us. God is with us in this moment, in the presence of our lives. God also is outside of time, declaring the end from the beginning. He's everywhere. He's in all of those places. Right? We can't really wrap our minds around that. Right? That's a huge thing to say. Isaiah is saying a very huge thing there. And those kinds of things that we can't sort of explain or put into words should cause us to worship. So we worship God. If we can actually figure out God and, and put a period on everything that we understand, we have full understanding of God, that kind of knowledge uh, would actually, this is another sermon, but that would actually make us God. And so we don't. We don't get it. We don't understand that. There's one person who does. He's God. And he understands how he can be inside of time and outside of time at the same time. So this should cause us to worship it. It's ultimate reality. It's, it's the story that we're living in. We're living in the story that God has written and is writing from the end, from the beginning to the end that He will accomplish all His purposes. God is amazing. That's the story that you and I live in. There is someone at the wheel of the universe. Our lives are many things. Our lives can be disappointing. Our lives can be uh, full of suffering at times. Our lives can be difficult for us. Here's one thing is our life our lives are not. Our lives are not chaotic. We use that. I use that all the time. I use that word. We need to remember, it's okay, you know, not the word police. You can say that if you want to. It's not a sin to say that. It's just completely false. There's nothing chaotic. There's nothing chaotic about my life. There is a force of love and logic and good at the center of my life. His name is Jesus. And so things that happened to me that I didn't expect that seemed chaotic are not chaotic. <laughs> That's what that means. So, 
I'm, I'm swimming in deep waters this morning, I know. But, but I just want you to know that your life, your life is many things, but not chaotic. And God is sovereign over everything, declaring the end from the beginning, and his purpose shall stand. Ephesians 1.11, God, you might want to put that on your fridge, on your odometer, so that God works all things according to the counsel of his will all the time. So to say something huge like that brings up questions, right? Some of you may be frustrated with how absolutely I said some of those things, and it's okay. It's okay because there are some questions that arise from us when we say that, if we say that God is sovereign over everything. First question, I just want to address, what about human responsibility? What about the responsibility that you and I have to get out of bed tomorrow, to go to work, to do what we do, to raise our kids, to, to function? If God's sovereign, you know, can I, just, can I just not do that today, right? What about human responsibility? Michael Horton helps us. I think I have that up on a slide, but I, I will read this. Uh, Michael Horton's a pastor in California. He says this, To be sure... The truth of God's providence is meant to assure believers that ultimately our times are in God's hands. But God does not fulfill all of his purposes directly. In fact, it is his ordinary course to employ means, whether human beings or weather patterns, social upheavals, animal migrations, various vocations, and a host of other factors over which he has control. We are comforted by the truth that God works all things, even adversity, into his plan for our salvation, God provides, but we are commanded to pray for our daily bread and labor in our callings. So that's a great, I know there's a lot there, it's a thick paragraph, that's, that's a great word about our responsibility that we should pray, that last sentence, we should pray for our daily bread as, as Jesus taught us to, and to labor in our callings, because just because God will accomplish his purpose doesn't mean that he's not going to accomplish it without means, when we grew up, how many people had the little Disney books where you would turn the page and it would say, when Tinkerbell waves her magic wand, turn the page. Just me? Feeling very alone up here right now. Okay. My mom read those books to me when I was a kid. Sorry, it's in my brain. God often does not work like Tinkerbell waving her magic wand and then something just happens. Right? At times God does that. We saw... The, the vision that he gave Paul, at times it can seem like, like God is doing it like that, but most of the time, as Dr. Horton says, not that way. Most of the time, he's using, I love what he says, weather patterns. We don't know this. We don't know that the reason a storm came and we decided to not take that trip tonight, that God is at work in that. We don't think about it that, that way, but God's at work in that, right? Um, all sorts of things. What did he say? Uh, animal migrations, various vocations as our various jobs and stations that we occupy in life. We're, we're a son, we're a, a father, we're an uncle, we're, we're a, an employee. All the various places that we go, God's working in all those various things in different ways, right? So God provides, our times are in his hands, but we should labor in our callings and pray for our daily bread. Amen? That's the, that's the tension there between God being over all things and our responsibility is that God has declared the means about, by which he will accomplish his purposes. So our responsibility is important because he's told us how we should live. The Bible gives us a lot of what God's will is for us, right? How we should live, love our neighbors, ourselves, love the Lord our God, um, be pure in our activity, um, the Ten Commandments, right? God has, to has told us how we should live, and he governs the means 
by which he accomplishes things. Let me give you some examples, and these are just, you know, you could make a hundred examples. So if God's going to bring crops to an area that needs food, people are struggling with hunger and they need crops, God is not just going to cause corn to appear, right? He's going to bring a rainstorm, isn't he? He's going to bring a rainstorm to that area and he's going to give them a farmer that knows what to do. That's oftentimes how God would fix a problem like that. Uh, If a doctor gives you and me the correct medicine to heal us, praise God for doctors and medicine, that was because, why did that happen? Because God allowed him to go to medical school, learn how to treat that illness. God used that doctor to heal us. If he's going to lead us into a new plan for our life, lead us to a new job, God wants us to seek wisdom. He gave us, you know, books of the Bible about that, Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, that we, we would seek wisdom, and God will use that wisdom to help us make a good decision. And like, how many times have we prayed, you know, God just hit me with a lightning bolt to know if I should take this job. Go ahead, right? It's not typically how it happens for me, right? God gives me wisdom. We should ask for wisdom to make a good decision. The Bible tells us how to seek wisdom, and so we can grow in wisdom, and then he uses that. And so God has it planned that we would be responsible in those ways, that a doctor would go to medical school, that a farmer would know how to raise crops, that we would get wisdom to know how to make decisions. So God uses those means for his purposes, That's often how God will work. And and I love that we get a little picture of that in our text today, is that, you know, two guys have a disagreement, go separate ways, and God was working the whole time behind the whole thing to advance the gospel more than he would have otherwise. Right? It's usually the way it happens for us. We kind of make fun of of the butterfly effect. I don't know if you've heard of that. Some of you have heard of it that, you know, it's very sort of high-minded, like a butterfly flapping its wings in Japan causes a hurricane in the Caribbean, you know, and uh, as, a, as a pebble disturbs the pond and the ripples go out, so is the history. You know, I don't know if you've heard any of that kind of stuff. We kind of laugh about it, right? Like if you watch the old uh, Kung Fu TV show, the guy would always talk about the pebble in the pond and, you know, all the... And, and so we make fun of it, but, but here's the thing about the butterfly effect and that, just that concept... That's actually how God sees things. There's one person that can talk about the butterfly effect. It's God. He knows that the butterfly flapping its wings in Japan. He knows what's going to happen because of that. I don't know that that has anything to do with a hurricane. I'm just saying that God knows what it will be about, right? Um, he sees that. He sees an act of kindness that's felt across the centuries because one person chosen an act of kindness. He, seems, he sees you know, the seemingly random choice to go to this coffee shop or that coffee shop or take this job, and he uses that for his glory. And, and yes, even you know, things that at the time seemed very difficult, a car accident, a sickness, God is using those things. Um, he makes two people run into each other in a chance meeting, and later they get married, and they decide to have kids, and one of their kids is named Billy Graham. And the gospel goes forward to all the nations because two people had a chance meeting. God is behind those things. And we don't see that. We don't see uh, the butterfly effect of those things, but God does. And just because we don't see it doesn't mean that God's not sovereign and he's not in charge. See, that's what happens because if we don't see it and we don't see um, you know, the logic or the reason behind it, we then say, well, God's not in charge. That was just random. 
That was a random occurrence. No, it's just that we don't see it. It's that we don't see it. You don't, you don't shake God's sovereignty. You don't shake Isaiah 49 that God sees the end from the beginning. You don't say, well, if I choose this job instead of that job, then God will have to refigure things because he thought I was going to do that and I'm going to do this. Right? That's, we can't do that. We never shake God's sovereignty. Here, here's the way to think about it. We were traveling this morning and, and uh, Jody's GPS said, rerouting. There's construction. I'm rerouting. God is never rerouting. You didn't make a decision and put God in an ambulance that he had, and has to go fix it because you rerouted him. That never happens. God never reroutes. He's always working through it. Um, God doesn't have to refigure it out again. God knows. He's designing it. He's working it. Even though God uses means, He uses prayer, He uses our decisions, He uses history, He uses governments, He uses artists, He uses weather, He uses natural events to bring about His plans. God is bringing out His, He's working out His plans to bring about His purposes. God is always doing that through our lives and through our decisions. So that's my answer to the question, what about human responsibility? Yes, we have a lot of responsibility to to wake up tomorrow and do what God's called us to do and fulfill the vocations that God's put in our life. We should do that because God has ordained and has purposes in all of those things. So that's why we do it. Another question that might come up with us when we talk big like this about God's purposes is what about evil? What about hard and difficult things in the world? We've seen some of it lately. Seems like we're in a pattern here, even last night in Philadelphia, just again and again, just tragedies that we see. What about evil? There could be a whole series of sermons and books about that, and there have been. But we say that God is sovereign, as Isaiah 49 said. God is sovereign over evil and uses it for his good ends. You might say like, like something sort of rises up when we hear that inside of us. Well, God promises to take care of his children and provide for them. So what about when Christians are starving? What about when there's food difficulties? What do we say to that if we say that God takes care of his children? Well, we need to, to involve some other categories in that discussion that in a case like that, well, someone is being sinned against. Someone is being oppressed, someone is being sinned against, someone is having resources kept from them, and God has said in his word that he will hold people accountable for that. God will judge that. He will use that for his good ends, and, and God is judge. When God promises that he will defeat all evil and it will come to an end, he decides on what timetable he will do that. And so again, we, just because we don't see it and we don't see the resolution of those kinds of things immediately does not mean that God's not at work. It's just that he has his own timetables to do that. The Bible says that in so many different uh, places. I think of Genesis 50 with the story of Joseph and his brothers, right? That he was sold into slavery. Uh, his brothers tried to kill him. They left him for dead. He got into jail. God gave him the ability to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh, right? You know the story. Uh, He got out of jail. He interpreted dreams for Pharaoh. He was put in charge of the food of the kingdom. There was a famine. Guess who helped folks not starve to death? Joseph, right, who was there in jail, but was let out and then helped the entire kingdom survive. And at the end, Joseph says to his brothers, When you left me in the pit, you meant it for evil, 
but God meant it for good. Genesis 15, 20, if you want to write that down. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now that's, that's heavy because it's saying there that, that God, when he was being wronged and thrown in the pit and beaten up and in jail for 14 years, it's saying that God was not absent during that time. God was meaning it for good, for the good of you know, not only all the things he was doing in Joseph's heart and in Joseph's life, but for the good of the entire world at the time. That we were going to be saved from this famine through Joseph's leadership. God meant it for good. And of course, the biggest thing in, in the scriptures is, is Christ on the cross. That God used the worst sin ever committed, the most unjust day ever. As Colbert spoke to us about on Good Friday, the most injustice ever committed God used for the good of all people. And God used that for you and me in our life to save us. And so we can't ever say, no, God's not being fair to me. This is the worst, you know, I'm being wronged. Folks are against me. And, and God would say that, that I know what that feels like because I gave you my only son. And that was the worst day ever. That was the worst injustice. And I used it. And it was good for the world so the cross is, is the biggest example of that. That's not even, that question of what about evil, where is God when things are going wrong is not even a new question, right? From the very first days, you know, Jesus on the cross, if you remember, what were the, what were the scoffers sort of hurling at Jesus on the cross? If you are the Son of God, right, get down from there. They, they say, he trusted in God. I think this is in, in uh, Luke. He trusted in God, so let God rescue him now. Right? We're watching something evil happen. Watching something wrong happen. God, why don't you fix that? Why don't you get him down? Save yourself, they yelled at Jesus. So this question of something evil is happening, how can you be God and allow this to happen is not new. It's not new. And, and God entered into it, of course, that day when Christ gave his life and died. He didn't answer that prayer immediately, right? It was three days later. Christ rose from the dead. And uh, we still have those questions, and God still meets us there. God still meets us there. So the presence of evil is not an attack on God's sovereignty. When people sin and suffering is because of that, there are consequences to that. But God is not blind to what is going on. He knows and he is there. And only through the gospel, only through the good news of Jesus do we see that God's with us in suffering. Evil will be judged. And one day evil will be totally wiped away. So that's, that's God's answer to our suffering is his presence. He's with us. He's not far from us. God is with, his presence is with us. His justice, that if you've been wronged, God will hold people accountable for that. If you've been wrong, there's justice in God and restoration that one day God will make all the sad things come untrue and God will restore all things. So his presence, his justice, and his restoration, that's God's answer to what about evil. He's with us, sin will be judged, and he will make all things right one day. Hope that's a help to you in that question. That's a question that that, uh, again, not new. 
down through history, folks have asked that question. So, two big questions. What about evil and what about our responsibility? Hopefully I've helped you with that. We want to say God is sovereign over all things. Our takeaway from, from this, these stories of Paul sort of being blocked from doing what he wanted, God sends him in a different direction, uh, Paul and Barnabas have a conflict. There's sin there. God still uses that as they have to split apart. Our takeaway is that God will accomplish his purposes, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Sometimes spectacular ways, sometimes through just day-to-day things. And so I think for some of us, what needs to happen is, is we need to be restoried. We need to be re, We need to have a new narrative for our life. Again, that, that your life is not chaotic. God's not out to get you. That's the, if that's the self-talk, if that's the story that you tell yourself, God doesn't let me have nice things, life is chaotic, I don't know where this is going, I hope maybe today's story will help you sort of be restoried. What is the narrative of the universe? Are things just chaotic? No, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's two ways to, there's many ways, there's two main ways to sort of fall off the road on that. Um, Anxiety is when we believe that God won't get it right, and bitterness is when we believe that God got it wrong. Now, having that emotion, and especially some of us today, as anxiety actually becomes like a medical thing, and and there's actually anxiety that, that we don't know where that's coming from, we're not making absolute statements that you just need to trust God more and it'll go away. That's not what I'm saying. But even in the help that, that doctors can give us and even in the help that counselors can give us and, and our Christian friends can give us, those are all great sources of help. Again, God is using all of those things. Amen to all of those things. At the core of that, sometimes you can look and you can find, okay, I'm actually believing here that God's not going to get this right in my life. That's why I'm anxious. Sometimes you can drill down into that and be helped by restoring. I think I just made up that word. By restoring your life. That no, God is going to be there. God is going to get it right one day in your life. And then, of course, uh, bitterness, you know, something that I've. I mean, I think all of us in our life, we can look back and go, man, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that person did that to me. And so what we're saying by sitting in that place is that God got it wrong. And what we see today, even through Paul and Barnabas, is uh, no, sin was committed. God is judged. There's, There's justice. Amen to justice. But God didn't get it wrong. God's working through it. God's working through it. He will judge sin committed against us. And that's a deep comfort to us. We don't talk enough about the justice of God these days, and I actually think it's a comfort to us when we believe what the Bible teaches, that God is judge. It's a comfort to us. But we don't want to look back and just believe that God got it wrong. So, two cautions. Anxiety and bitterness. Let's, let's be careful on what we're believing instead of what we read today, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. A couple of uh, quotes as we close today. Um, yeah, Duquan from back east says this, Take heart, God will get you to resurrection glory. He's working all things, even your grief, towards this future day. In fact, God has been doing this for you since before time began. 
Do you think he'll suddenly stop taking care of you now? He has been committed to you, say it, forever. Got to remember that God didn't start making his plan for your life the day you were born. Oh, hey, here's a new person. I think I'll make some plans for that guy. No. Before the foundations of the earth, God was working out your life, and he's been committed to you since then. Take comfort in that. And Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor, said, My dear friend, when grief presses you to the dust, worship there. Because, like we said, even in that place of of grief, we we remember and we believe that God is sovereign. So from, from this narrative today, we see that. We see that, again, through big ways and small ways, God is always at work. And if we can grow in our life and realizing that, sort of recognizing that, realizing it, and then walking in light of that, that God is always at work. It doesn't mean that we sort of exist above the fray and nothing can kind of get us down and no time for tears and hallelujah Jesus all the time, everything is great. That's not what I'm advocating. But what I'm saying is even in our grief, even in the low times, even in the the most difficult times, just releasing to the Lord, God, I'm, I'm with you. Please help me to remember you're with me. What do you have for me in this? Help me to just sit with you, be quiet in this moment. Um, that's where God wants to work. I'm sure that, that Paul and Barnabas probably had many nights like that. Lost my best friend. Here I am, far away from home. Um, God used that in their life, and like we saw, there was some reconciliation later on for them. So in a minute at our tables, I just invite you to think, what are some ways, if you look back, at the timeline, if you look back at the history of your life, that God is seeing the whole thing, if, if you take a step back and look back, what was a time when, when God was at work and you didn't know it at the time? Maybe you didn't, maybe there's even some bitterness there and you haven't fully released the fact that, yeah, maybe God was working then and I haven't accepted that. Um, and then how can we move forward? And, and just a time for prayer. If anybody at your table needs prayer, maybe they're in the middle of something where they're not sort of seeing what God is doing. We're not, we're not seeing what God might do. You can pray for them and care for each other. So I'll pray and then we'll go to our tables this morning. Pray with me. Father, you created all things so, so that we actually wouldn't be able to fully wrap our minds around uh, your sovereignty. But we want to dive in as deep as we can and just rest in and realize the fact that you are at the wheel of history and the future. And we can rest in that. We can live in that. And God, for for those of us who have just gone through really difficult things and we've been wronged, God, we've been sinned against. And that's, you know, put some some things in our life and trajectories that, that we wish were not there. Um. Lord, would you be near to us in that? Would you be near to us in that? And would you help us to, to see that you didn't leave us in those days, God, but you're, you're with us, that you are judge, and that you will restore all things. You will restore our life, and you'll restore our heart. You'll do all of those things. All of those things are coming for us, and we'd be uh, full of hope, God. Would we be full of hope because of that? I pray especially for those folks uh, this morning who, who are looking at that as we engage with this truth. So be with us now at our tables. Help us to encourage one another um, with those things. 
In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to transition to communion and respond in worship. Uh, I know before, uh, you know, even before announcements, when Aaron was praying, he talked about, uh, he prayed about resting in Christ and resting in God. And then uh, the sermon on uh, on God's sovereignty, it was just reason after reason after reason to trust in Christ, to rest in him, to put your whole faith in him. So, uh, yeah, um, in First Peter chapter 5, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And uh, so I just want to encourage everyone to cast your anxieties on Christ because he cares for you. So as a believer, cast your cares on him. And if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, it's a good time to cast your cares on him. And uh, lots of ways we can respond to, to God's word. Um, or one way is singing, which we'll do in a little bit. One way is by communion, which I'll explain here in a second. But we also can respond by giving. And there's a box in the back where you can give, uh, or you can give online. Uh, you can respond in prayer. You can have somebody pray at the table, or we'll be back in the corner uh, if you need prayer. And um, see other ways to respond. But we can, as we uh, approach communion, communion is our time to remember Christ. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. And he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So communion can be a time of serious contemplation as we reflect on Christ and what he's done. It can also be a time of celebration to rejoice in what he's done. But either way, it's a time to remember Christ. So as the music plays, uh, we have tables around. You can take the, the cup and the drink and, um, and celebrate. Uh, but this is just for believers. We do open communion here, which means anybody that professes faith in Christ can participate. But uh, if you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, this isn't for you, but this is a good time to cast all your cares on him. So uh, let me pray. Lord, uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in charge and we're not. And uh, just help us to, to rest in you, to remember you, and to love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.